Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. We hope you enjoyed this segment from our 2022 Boise Reformation Conference with Dr. Joel Beakey and Dr. Derek Thomas as they answer questions about the church. What is the hardest thing that you have experienced in, the, in local church life, and how did you overcome it? Uh, two things. Um, I was in Ireland uh, from 78 to 96 at the time of the... The troubles, uh, the IRA, uh, the bombings, the shootings. So I visited the home of a widow of a policeman who'd been shot 38 times in his back. But the worst one was um, a family, not in my congregation, but in in our denomination, a sister congregation in my denomination. But I, I knew the family. They'd only recently come to faith. Let me, let me guess that it was no more than six or seven years. And their four-year-old daughter was abducted and was missing for several weeks. And then uh, they found her body. Uh, she'd been molested and uh, her body had been thrown into a lake. And uh, they, they didn't catch the perpetrator until maybe six or seven years ago. It had been like 25 years uh, that that they didn't know who that person was. But to watch them, to watch the parents, to go to the house uh, the evening she went missing and to see their faith, rock solid faith. I remember at the funeral when the body was eventually discovered, there were, I'm gonna guess, there were five to 6,000 people carrying her coffin up a very tiny, narrow lane towards the graveyard. And it was about a mile from where the church was. Um, Yeah, in both instances, I I realized that it wasn't me going to minister to them. It was actually them Hmm. ministering to me. Yeah. that God had given to them extraordinary faith. Now, that's not to say that in the weeks and years, in the case of the little girl, their faith was tested. And especially when they found him, so all of those wounds were reopened once again. Um, but the times when I dread ministry are times when Christians behave badly. But the times when you sort of dread, this is going to be hard because it's going to be emotionally difficult. Actually, I've, I've always come away from those having been ministered to. Dr. Bickey? Yeah. Uh, the Puritans used to say that God would normally 
lead ministers through deep ways in the ministry to make them more, more useful and more compassionate as counselors and pastors. And I, I believe that's happened to me. I've, I've been brought through some very, very deep ways personally in ministry. And the hardest for me personally was uh, our denominational split. And I was the center of the object of that. And that was a six-year trial. And a few people were doing everything they could to get me deposed. It was agony. And there were times I could give it over to the Lord. Times I would be crawling on my study. You know, that old shag carpet. <laughs> I'd be pulling at the shag carpet, just crying out to God, literally crawling on the ground for mercy. It was unspeakable. Sweet times of communion with God and times where I thought my whole world was going to implode. And they finally, they finally won the battle. And during those years, I, if I wasn't 100% sure I was called to ministry, I would have, I would have quit many times. But um, I just couldn't quit. So I, I'd go and preach, and God would help me in preaching it. I'd stand on the pulpit. I, I couldn't even raise my two hands to pronounce a benediction without leaning my body against the pulpit because I felt like I was going to faint all the time. But I just had to preach. And um, the amazing thing when I look back is I saw more conversions under my ministry in those six years than any other time in my life. It's just, it was a, I call it a mini revival. Uh, yeah, there's a hundred or more people in my church that were converted in those years from nominal members to true, true members. Uh, and then I thought my world ended when I really was deposed. But to my astonishment, 78%, we had exactly 1,000 members at the time, 78% of the congregation voted to stay with us. But then we were forced to start a new denomination, which I didn't want to do at all. And then God turned everything around and he closed what I thought was about the only door of my life and he opened up a thousand bigger ones. And, and, and he just brought good out of evil. He restored the years the locusts have eaten. So God's been incredibly good to me and uh, gave me just a wonderful wife and a wonderful family. And I just... I, Every day I'm just amazed at his goodness to me. But I also endured some, I also went through some deep trials like, like Derek, uh, a couple with, with individual families and so on. Um, two weeks after I was ordained as a minister at 25 years of age, a school bus went over a hill in Rock Valley, Iowa, and um, picked off a 13-year-old girl. It was a member of the church I was a moderator of, and uh, she died instantly. And I, I was so young, I'd never seen any funeral except my own grandfather's. I'd never done a funeral. And um, I went to visit the mourning family. I still see that 13-year-old body laying there in the coffin like it was yesterday. And I sat down next to the parents, and I couldn't do anything but cry. I couldn't... I couldn't I just couldn't open the Bible yet, and I just cried with them for quite a long time. And I, 
it was overwhelming. And then um, another minister walked in the door from another congregation. He was so composed and he was so professional and he was so good and he opened the Bible and he prayed with them. And I felt so worthless, such a failure. But two days later, I got a note from the family. Thank you for sitting with us and crying with us. <laughs> and I, it was like a light bulb went on in my mind. You know, God brings pastors through these difficult times to learn compassion. You can't learn compassion if you're not there with people. And then in my own church, early on in my own church, I've been in Grand Rapids for 36 years. And one of the early years, there was a man who walked into an office and, and killed one of the most godly young men in our church, shot him. And um, I got a call right away from the father, or the, yeah, the father of the man, and um, he just heard it from his daughter-in-law. So I went right away, and I got there before the father-in-law got there, and I was alone with this young widow with a whole bunch of children, and that, that was unforgettable. Such a godly man. In fact, we had hoped he was, he was being, in the process of being called to the ministry. And these things shape and mold you. But I agree with what Derek said. There are certain people in your congregation when they go through trials that are so far above and beyond you as a minister in their walk of faith that they pastor you more than you pastor them. And they're a huge blessing. Spurgeon used to say about such people that they're worth a hundred in the congregation for a minister when you see their walk of faith. And one of the beautiful things about being a pastor is when you see people in great trial and they respond so well to the Lord, you walk away from a visit like that and it's like you feel the reality of God so overwhelmingly. You just want to give it to everyone and all your spiritual energies and your pastoral energies and your preaching energies are revived. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, we, need, we have about seven minutes left before oh, we have wow. to usher Dr. Thomas off. Uh, Dr. Thomas, uh, every two years, Ligonier puts out a state of theology survey to take the spiritual temperature of Americans. And statement 24 of this year's survey said, uh, every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. And the respondents can agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree. So if we filter only for evangelicals with evangelical beliefs, the survey found that 68% agree versus the 28% who disagree. So in other words, American evangelicals scored a D on church membership. The Bible assumes that Christians will join a church, a local church in places like 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, 11, 18, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5. What do you think the reason is for this low view of church membership, and what is the way forward? Well, the underlying assumption in the survey, and they have done four or five of these surveys over the last um, seven or eight years, is what exactly is an evangelical? And, and the word that maybe had meaning 50 years ago, it, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning uh, in 2022. Um, I think an evangelical back in the 1950s, 1960s, was someone who was committed to the authority of scripture. They, they believed in the full deity and humanity of Christ. They believed in a substitutionary atonement. They 
believed in the wrath of God. They may not have been Calvinists, but they believed in basic Christian doctrines. But evangelical today means, I mean, even Bishop Ryle talked, and this is 120 years ago, Bishop Ryle said that there was more jelly than anything else in evangelicals. Um, so so the, the, the premise is based on the fact that these are true, genuine evangelicals of the definition of the 1950s, and, and they're probably not. I'm almost certain that a lot of them are not. I do think, I do think that Christianity in North America, you know, sings, oh say, can you see what's in it for me? I mean, that, that's the national anthem, I think, of most of American evangelicalism. And so they, they view church just as they view everything else. You can take a little bit of it or a lot of it or all of it, but, but you can also, if, if all church is about is fellowship in the sense of ha- having a group of friends that, that you can have dinner with and, and take your kids to the football game, you know, church isn't, isn't that central. You know, you can go to church once a year, twice a year, once a month, but, but it's not a, a, a fixed thing. And then you add to that that there is virtually no doctrine of the Sabbath, except in Joel's circles. There is no doctrine of the Sabbath in a great deal of the Reformed churches in North America. I mean, a doctrine of the Sabbath that says, I must be in church every Sunday morning and evening. Whenever there is a service, I should be there. And, and that doesn't exist uh, in vast tracts of so-called uh, reformed churches. Um, so I think that would, that would be a part of the reason why there, there is a vast number, some, some 35%, for whom uh, the answer to the question, do I really have to belong to a church? No. Uh, I think that's where it comes from. All right, can we get a round of hand for Dr. Thomas and Dr. Biggie? Thank you, brothers.